Welcome to Research Bites, the podcast about researchers and their journey in academia. My name is Lachlan Gray. I'm joined by fellow co-host Felix Cohane. Uh, MTS is out today, so I hope you're having a good time. And today we're joined by the very special guest, Dr. E. Kai T, who is the Chadwick Biodiversity Fellow at the Australian Museum. Now, uh, Dr. Kai is a systematic ichthyologist right. and wildlife <laughs> photographer. And whilst you're at it, an absolute weapon at karaoke. Um, <laughs> so hopefully we hear those pipes later on. Um, yeah, how's it going, Kai? You well? Um, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, my title and job, it's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. Um, systematic ichthyologist, but you, you nailed it. Really good. Yeah, I've been terrified all day. <laughs> good work, so I'm you did happy, so well. Like. Yeah. Um, yeah, so starting off as we usually do, um, how'd you get into research? What's your story? Uh, so um, my story is actually really, it's not really conventional. I, I grew up in Singapore before I moved to Australia to my undergrad. And um, I guess growing up, I've always really had a super strong interest in wildlife and nature. And my mom's she's really good at, um, you know, cultivating that interest with uh, me and my brother growing up. And my dad was probably single-handedly responsible for my interest in fish today. He was a, a huge aquarist he collected a whole bunch of different fishes and i don't remember at any point in my childhood having not having a fish tank basically i've always had a fish tank so i've always had that interest in fishes um and i just knew one day that i wanted to be a fish scientist i guess you know part of it came from you read all these guidebooks and and field guides and you know reference books when you were younger trying to put names to things and as i grew older i had my own aquariums and i started keeping fish you know for myself and and I, I noticed like, oh, you know, like this particular fish doesn't really have a name. Like on the book, it just says, you know, genus, sp, question mark. And I'm like, why, why does it not have a name? Like surely, you know, like every, every fish out there, surely, you know, like we know all the fishes. And then it just dawned to me that, they, you know, there are heaps of fishes out there that just have not been named, have not been discovered. And as I grew older and I did my undergrad degrees and I, I just started finding a place in science where I could like, combine my interest and my, you know, yeah, academic and, and personal interest. And I thought, well, you know, why not? Why not get into that career? At this point, I didn't really know what that is or what it involves, but I just wanted to, I want to be the guy who puts the name on a fish from a book that doesn't actually have a name. Where do I go about doing that? How do I get about doing that? And then one thing led to another and here I am. And you've done that like a number of times now, right? So <laughs> yeah. dream, tick, 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 yeah. right? Yeah, it's been a, been a bit of a full circle moment for me uh, several times over now, which is great. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great experience being a fish taxonomist. Wow. So, so fish, fish taxonomy, is that uh, ichthyology? Or what, what's, what, how does ichthyology differ from systematic yeah. ichthyology? So, it, okay, I'll, this is a boring part, but, you know, what is ichthyology? Ichthyology just means the study of, of fish, right. fishes. Um, comes from the word ichthos, which is Greek for fish. <laughs> and ology is just the study of. So if you you can be all different, you can be any type of biologist. Um, if you study some component or aspect of fishes, you are an ichthyologist. A taxonomist is someone who puts a name to an animal, um, classifies them, describes them, names them, and... and and, and basically works out their relationships uh, with other related creatures. A systematist is someone who combines all the different branches of biology, taxonomy, uh, molecular ecology, population genetics, 
and they seek to understand the changes across historical time and space. How are species related to each other back then? Are they sharing the same relationships now? How how have these relationships changed over time and space? And then put that in, into a phylogenetic concept. So like how do these relationships yeah, influence each other when you look at like the tree of life? Mm-hmm. So a systematic ichthyologist is someone who applies those theories and methods to fishes, which is what I'm interested in doing. What is it about fish that make them such such a good candidate for systematic ichthyology or systematic studies, I guess? Well, they you know they 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 are the most abundant and successful radiation in the vertebrate tree of life. There are more fishes than any other animal out there with a backbone, um, and they live on you know they're, they're so successful at, at what they do. They live in oceans, rivers, ponds, lakes, every conceivable habitat that has water or even in some instances not enough water you, you know you can find fishes living in those places and there's just so much biodiversity out there that we still don't know about they are akin to like insects living in a rainforest but except you can't just walk into a reef and with a hand net and catch whatever you want you know you are limited by how much time you can spend down in underwater uh, the equipment that you you use how deep the reefs are you know, for that reason, there's still so much we don't know about coral reef fishes. And that's the kind of branch that I specialize in, coral reef studies. Mm. And I think in one of the your papers or articles, you mentioned that it's coral reefs that where some of these unknown fish tend to hide, like, uh, well, the un, unnamed species. Yeah. yeah, so I have a really strong interest in what we call mesophotic coral ecosystems, which, um, so if you go snorkeling or diving, you would be in the photic zone where there's, you know, a lot of light penetration, corals and, and algae and all sorts of other beautiful photosynthetic organisms grow because there's there's a lot of light there. But as you go deeper down into what we call the mesophotic, that's where light gets really attenuated, but not completely absent. So that's around 50 to 150 meters. So in this this band of the coral reefs, it's it's really exciting because it's way too deep for most people to access with scuba diving equipment. You can't get there mm. with a, a regular scuba tank. Ironically, it's, it's way too shallow to you know go down there with submarines because submersibles are really clunky. They produce a lot of heat. And, and at, in those reefs, it's way too complex and too shallow for like a submarine to operate properly. So it's sitting at this weird intermediate area where it's just awkward it's just too deep for submarines it's too shallow for sorry it's too shallow for submarines it's too deep for divers where how do we get there we don't which is why so much of the mesophotic realm remains unexplored that's where all the new species are hiding and it's only in the last couple decades that people have connected to dots and and said oh you know we can we can actually dive down to 150 meters if we use something called a rebreather so a rebreather is a really specialized breathing apparatus that you know underwater navy rescue divers use to, you know, rescue people from shipwrecks. So sometimes, you know, cable operators, they'll go down to like 100 meters to repair fiber optic cables and they use rebreathers. So biologists have now just started using rebreathers to go down to the mesophotic and they're finding heaps of new species living what, there. What is that? How does that work? Like the, the rebreather? So a rebreather basically, when you use a scuba tank, for example, you're breathing in air from a tank and you're breathing out your exhalant air as bubbles. Yeah, with a rebreather, your exhalant air is pumped back into the tank and scrubbed out using a filter. So you're 
you're recycling your exhalant air and removing the carbon dioxide so you, you can stay down for much longer. Mm. Secondarily, it's the component of air is also different. In scuba tanks, a lot of the majority of the air is nitrogen. And but down in those depths at 150 meters, for example, nitrogen becomes really poisonous, becomes toxic. You get nitrogen narcosis, you get, you know, the ill effects of um becomes like a narcotic agent. Mm. And to combat that, people use helium as the primary component of like the gas mixture. So there are differences in the, the way the air is mixed and how the, the the air is being scrubbed that allows you to stay down for a lot longer and a lot more safer as well. Um, Interesting. I didn't actually know about that. So it's it's like filtering the air as opposed to when you're breathing in through like a scuba tank and that's why you can stay down there for yeah. long enough to observe the fish and I guess capture them yeah. if, 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 you, if that's what you're doing. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. The, the thing is like I... <laughs> I want to I want to put this out there in the universe. I, I mean, people know, but I am not by any means or stretch a misophotic diver. I, I, <laughs> I was I, about to ask no. you. I, you know what? And there is no I shame. I say that. Eh? <laughs> well, there's no shame in admitting. You know, I'm I, like, did you bring one? <laughs> I do. I dive. I dive quite a bit for you know recreationally, but um, cool. I, I'm not rebreather certified. Right. I don't know if I'll ever be. It's. I just I I know that I don't have the mental aptitude and the discipline mm. to like mm. go down to 150 meters in the water and just, yeah. you need to be really in tune with the equipment and, and you have to have a discipline that, you know, it's really dangerous. It's risky stuff. Yeah. And I just, I'm not cut yeah. up for it, I don't think. But I'm lucky in that I work with a lot of like, you know, really, really amazing mesophotic biologists, you know, people that have trailblazed the field and they've, you know, over the years collaborated with me and I've been lucky enough to work with them. So they'll go down, they collect fish and, because I specialize in a particular group of fish. Um, we work together putting names to them and, and doing a lot of stuff together. It's very collaborative. Mm. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the work that I do in Australia anyway for the last couple of years have been identifying areas that are, you know, rich in undescribed biodiversity um, through either remote operator vehicles or underwater drop cameras and and stuff like that. Mesophotic science is not necessarily only restricted mm. to you being physically present in the water. There's a lot you can learn from, you know, putting cameras down and, and driving remote operator vehicles and stuff like that. Um, and also looking at historical archival specimens in museums, which is what I do for for my research. Mm. Yeah, so so once the meso the mesothelic divers mesophotic mesophotic divers uh, come back with some uh, fancy glittering fish. Mm. What what actually goes into the classification process? How how do you do that? So, you know, with and this applies broadly outside of fishes too. There are so many ways that new species are discovered. You know, there are some some things we called we call unknown unknowns, where it's just bang, that is a new species, no question about it. It just looks unreal. We've never seen anything like it before. You know, gold star new species. Sometimes, you know, and this is what we call the known unknowns. It's new, but we we know about it. We've seen it before in photos, in cameras, and sorry, from from yeah, from camera photos, underwater videos. We know they exist. Maybe we have a a really ratty specimen in the museum. We know the species exist, but we can't for whatever reason, you know, do anything more with it because we don't have enough material. So when we get a specimen like that, it's great because now we can finally put a name to it. And then there are stuff where it's a little bit more 
new ones. So we don't know if it's new. It could be, it could not be. You know, like sometimes the differences are just a lot more subtle. That's where genetics really come in handy. Mm. So, you know, yeah, there are so many different ways that you can go about finding new species. Sometimes it's it's a lot less obvious. It's just hiding under, you know, under, under your noses in plain sight. Sometimes it's, and these are the ones that I think are more exciting. It's when it's just completely just gobsmackingly new. Like I'll be, I'll be involved in maybe like a, a pilot study where they, they're driving a remote operator vehicle in a remote reef somewhere in the central Pacific and they'll pick up video footage of this fish and it's just everyone watching the live stream will just be just go, you know, what on earth is that? It's clearly, you know, something from this particular genus, but we, we've never seen anything like it before. It's completely brand new. It's, and that is just amazing. I mean, like, there are not many animal groups in the world left where you can actually look at a photo and just go, that is a new mm. giraffe or zebra or, or you know, like mm. birds, I think, are kind of the only other vertebrate group that are still constantly showing up with, you know, brand new species. It's amazing. It, um, is, it is quite amazing, yeah. I wonder, how, how's that process been revolutionized through through some of these new technologies like genetics sequencing oh yeah i guess you know <laughs> i didn't really answer your first question so yeah when you when you you know when you have a hypothesis that something's a new species you mm. don't have to you do the work um even if something is completely brand new you can't just say oh that's a new thing and then call it a day you gotta go on other those yeah days. you gotta go and actually collect data from the specimen collect we, we usually define you know a species based on a set of predetermined characters and we do the measurements we do the the counts we call that moristics and morphometrics um how many scales does this particular fish have and how does it differ from its next closest relative you come up with a list of differences or similarities whatever you want you write a paper justifying why that's a new species you give it a name everything's in accordance with the international code of zoological nomenclature you do the genetics if you have to um you put it in a nice little paper you publish it, you put it out for peer review, and if it's accepted, it's that's when it gets christened as a new species and it's mm. out there for good. So yeah, I was cu- <clears throat> I was curious about that, like the because you yeah I, I think in your most recent paper you were talking about how yeah there's these morphological um, traits and then the genetic traits and then yeah I guess I was I was interested in, in more detail and like that systematic because that seems quite like a um, like an Aristotelian, Arist- Aristotelian, whatever that word is, a way of like characterizing things like, oh, this has a ribbed leaf and this doesn't have a, mm. you know. So I, I guess like how has that advanced? Like is there, um, is it more of like at the microscopic level or is it as you said, like, oh, they have this number of scales and this one has a less or more number of scales, you know? Yeah, I mean, definitely the field of taxonomy has advanced greatly. Mm. I mean, if you compare species descriptions put out in the 1800s versus now you know back then you know preservation techniques were poor you can't there is no digital photography there is no way to like accurately you know replicate live coloration Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the specimens collected way back then were trawled from like you know fishing nets because you can't scuba diving wasn't invented then you know with all these newer techniques now photographing your specimen alive and once they're dead micro CT scanning, x-rays, you know, you are, you're able to like get a lot more detail out of a specimen now than say a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, and also, you know, 
yeah, with genetics, you can definitely look at stuff on the molecular level. Um, and with every specimen that we collect, one of the interesting things that you brought up before is whether one thing has a rib leaf or not. And with plants, it's very plastic. You know, sometimes a plant can have many different leaf types on a single specimen. How do you know whether that character is actually informative or just plastic? And so that's something that we as taxonomists are really interested in understanding as well. Say I describe a new fish and this particular fish has like five filaments on its fin as opposed to another closely related species that has three. How do I know that five versus three is an informative character? I don't until I have enough specimens of that potentially new species Mm. for me then to actually say, oh, you know, five is the mode. But sometimes you get specimens that have three, sometimes you have six. And then so that part of being a taxonomist is also understanding character variation Mm. and deciding what becomes useful and what becomes, you know, what's a distraction. And then on on, on that, like other than if you've seen this, one new fish no one's ever seen that before and has a particular trait could that be like a sexually dimorphic trait and you need to see as you're saying like more and then maybe um which i didn't really know fish could do this then they have like they can change their sex as well so that could be i guess there's a lot of variables in in that that's probably why genetics is such a key yeah element yeah exactly because i work all of those problems that you just posited i work <laughs> on a particular group of fishes that have all those problems and more. Yeah. You know, not only can they change their sex, the change in sex is accompanied by drastic change in morphology, which means that these traits are then, not only are they ontogenetic, which means they change based on like the life stage they're in, but they're also sexually dimorphic, which means they change based on like the the, the sex of the particular animal. Um, And these characters, because they're so driven by sexual selection, a lot of times you'll see huge differences in, you know, physical attributes, but, the genetics doesn't really catch up because, you know, whatever that's driving the change is really localized on a particular point in the genome that you're not actually sequencing, you're not actually targeting for. Mm-hmm. So you get, you get this discordance between big morphological change but, like, very little genetic change if you're looking at a particular marker that in use, mm-hmm. you know, quite often in, in science. Um, and that's why well, I think that's the fun thing about, you know, actually deciding what's new or not because it really humbles you at the end of the day you as a person sitting at the table there with that species in your hand, you are trying to put that thing... Taxonomy is an arbitrary construct. It's for us to categorise living things in the world. The fish doesn't know that it's a different species from another fish. It's what we're trying to like justify as you know, putting things in boxes and mm. giving them names and a systematic human. order yeah, mm. for a human to decide. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you just end up in a situation where like, I just don't know. You know and that's where really powerful genetic techniques come in handy. And how does behavior fit in here? So so once you classify your species, are you then no longer interested in it? Or do you then study its behavior? And does behavior actually fit into speciation? Yeah, so this works both ways. So behavior drives... In, in, ex, in examples like, for example, the birds of paradise... Um, in Papua New Guinea and, or fairy races that live on coral reefs because the main driver of evolution is sexual selection. Males not only develop all these amazing secondary characteristics to you know, get the attraction of, to, to attract the attention of the females, but a lot of times these morphological changes are also accompanied by behavioral changes. 
the way they swim, the way they hold the fins open, the way they swim in circles around the females. Like with the birds of paradise, they have really specific courtship dances. Sometimes fishes have that as well. But the reverse can be true for someone who's... So, yeah, like as a taxonomist, behavior can be really important. But as a taxonomist, my work sets the foundation for people who might be secondarily interested in the behavior. Mm. So taxonomy really is the, the fundamental unit of any biodiversity study. You can't really protect or conserve or do anything with a species until it has a name. Mm. If you're diving on the reef and you're like, oh, this, this, this animal is amazing. What is it? I want to know more about it. I want to know if it's threatened. I want to know if it's under any, you know, immediate yeah, threats from, you know, human caused disasters, natural disasters. But you can't do anything with it until that new animal has a name. Once it has a name, then only you can start doing all your relevant ecological studies, behavioral studies, what, what have you, functional stuff. So in a way, a lot of what people do out there. So <laughs> it's funny you say that I'm writing a paper now describing a new species of cleaner ass. Or cleaner fish. I'm sure you've heard of that. It's a, one of the most charismatic and iconic animals on coral reefs. It's a, a type of fish that exclusively lives its life as an obligate cleaner. Basically, it picks off parasites from other fishes, and the parasites that it consumes forms 90% of its diet. Because it's, it plays such an important role on coral reefs, people all over the world have just studied to death this thing, how its ecology affects the reef health, how you know everything... Everything you can think of, people have studied it. But the taxonomy of that fish is actually really, really terrible. There is a lot of, like, you know, stuff that needs to be worked out. How many species of cleaner asses are there? How do we know if this name is even correct? And so there's this disproportionate... There are, like, thousands of studies on cleaner asses, but, like, most of them are ecological. Very few of them are tax taxonomic. And without the taxonomy, you can't really actually apply the ecological studies because how do you know what you're studying is the actual thing that you're studying? Mm. So it works both ways. It kind of sounds like, and based on your quite extensive um, publication record for how recently you uh, finished your PhD, I'm incredibly jealous. Um, you're, I was going to ask you about this uh, concept of like uh, the hybrid species, if you can touch on that. But I guess before that, uh, it sounds like you, you're sort of moving around these different species, these different ideas. You've got like a really broad repertoire of, of research interests, but is that always coming down to this um, this uh, taxonomy, like always coming down to what is this species, you know? Yeah. So the question, what is a species, is probably one of the most contentious topics in, in biology. I mean, it depends on who you ask. You mm. can ask 10 different biologists and they all tell you different things because there are there is no one brushstroke that like appropriately paints our concept or understanding of speciation and what a species is. I mean, by far the most popular species concept is the biological species concept in which, you know, they posit two animals are considered species if they can only breed amongst themselves and they can't crossbreed. But we know now that, like, you know, a huge proportion of animals in the wild can and do form hybrids. Fertile hybrids or non-fertile hybrids are a different thing, but they can breed like a lion and a tiger can mate and produce viable offspring, a, a, a zebra and a horse. So if you go according to this concept strictly, then a tiger and a lion cannot be, you know, species. Um, so there, basically our understanding of a species concept is we use these concepts as, as guides, but there's always a bit of wiggle room to go off on. 
And in marine ecosystems, it's it becomes a lot more complicated because fishes live in basically a soup and they they have external fertilization, which means eggs and sperm get released in the water column and they float around and they mix and they get fertilized outside of the fish. And so if you're living on a reef where there are hundreds and thousands of different fishes, naturally you think, oh, hybrids should be more common, right? Because the eggs and sperm of like 10 different fishes will be mixed together in this soup. So that was what spurred that the question as to whether or not hybrids are more common on coral reefs than we than we think we we know, and so we did that whole survey of angelfish hybrids, and we found that you know yeah, a lot of fishes actually do hybridize, whether or not the hybrids are viable and form offspring themselves is a different question, and that mm. is, I guess you know that d- determines whether or not a species maintains its specific integrity down the line. Mm. That is fascinating <laughs> i ne- never thought about how fish re- reproduce yeah is it like a stochastic process it's it's out in the water if the tides bring one species eggs into the other that just boom we've got a hybrid yeah it's and, and it's more likely that it won't like is it is it less common that hybrids obviously exist especially if they're not viable um so yeah so to answer your first question, there is an element of stochasticity to it, um, really. I mean, if you have three fishes that live in the same reef all happen to be spawning at the same time, then there is a higher chances of you know hybrids happening. But generally, the more the the more closely related two species are, the more likely they'll form hybrids, and the more likely that the hybrids themselves are fertile. And when you have that, that becomes a problem because the hybrids now say you have fish A and fish B and they live on the same reef, hybrid AB can make more hybrid babies with other ABs, but they can also mate with As or Bs to make AABs and ABBs and whatever you want to call it. Over time, this mixture will erase the identity of As and Bs mm. because everything is now a continuum. You'll get this whole spectrum of weird intermediates. I mean, luckily in the wild... You don't really see A's and B's living on the same reef if they're really closely t- related because speciation naturally favors, you know... Specialization? Yeah, specialization in different niches. But in really, really specific areas of the world, and we call those hybrid hotspots, Christmas Island is an example, where you have the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean. They're two separate ocean basins. You know, in the last ice age, these ocean basins have been separated. But Indonesia, basically the island archipelago that separates the the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, is a semi-permeable barrier. It's, form, it's, it's formed by islands, and the islands have little holes in it because, you know, it's an archipelago chain. And over time, although species A and species B in separate ocean basins have gone on their way to evolve separately, because the barrier is permeable, any area around that intermediate interface becomes a natural hotspot for, like, A and Bs to, like, naturally mingle. You know, it's at the seam of, of two biogeographical crossroads. And Christmas Island sits right in that little crossroad. And because of the proximity of that island cluster to the, the, the permeable barrier, you see a lot of sister species that shouldn't be in contact come into contact. And that's where a lot of hybrids are being produced. And in those localized regions, you can actually see the parental species declining in number because hybrid e- or hybrid erosion is taking place. And so these areas become really interesting natural laboratories in which we can test the concept of speciation. Is that always negative? Like, could there be a scenario where 
you know, the joining of fish A and B, some, you know, recombination of that genetic material creates like a new trait that then leads to some sort of increase of fitness. Is that, yeah. is that a thing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. On the, on the contrary, on the flip side, there are some species that we think are of hybrid origin. Yeah. So hybrids can erase a species integrity, but hybrids can also, you know, over time lead to the formation of new species. Hybrid derived speciation is a thing. It's a lot harder to test in marine fishes, mm. but it's very common in plants. Right. Yeah. Okay. So the, the field of hybridization has grown leaps and bounds over the last couple of decades. It is a little bit lagging in the fish world, mm. only because, you know, collection of fishes is a lot harder than going into like the jungle or, or a field and collecting lizards or birds. It's... Fishes are always lagging behind in terms of like accessibility to material. But yeah, it's it is a field that's progressing along quite nicely. And and presumably that's the genetics is helping there particularly, like trying to trying to trace these evolutionary yeah. paths and where one genome got mixed with another genome. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah, it is it is an amazing people that study that. I mean, I dabbled in it. I don't think, you know, my study on hybrids is in any way, shape or form, you know, like I mean, it's, it's contributed quite a bit to like our understanding of fishes, but it's, there is a lot out there left to know mm. and, you know, questions that we don't even have answers to. So well, while we're on the topic of, uh, of naming species, I was wondering what's the process there? So you find this new fish, is there very strict guidelines that you have to follow? Um, I mean, in the world of genetics, there are some hilariously named genes, for example, probably more historically, I, I guess the the rules have tightened. Um, yeah, do you get do you get much free reign with that? Unfortunately, yes. Well, it's double edged sword, right? It's good and bad. Uh, it's good in that, like, no, we can pretty much name, you know, whatever we're describing, anything we want within reason. Obviously, a lot of it's subject to peer review, um, and obviously, it has to conform to the code. Um, basically, taxonomy is governed by this. Very literal book, like the code. It's like, it's like <laughs> the bylaws of taxonomy. It's called the ICZN. Uh, but in there, actually, it doesn't really it doesn't really govern the actual name that you give. It's more whether or not your species is valid and like priority namings of like if there's an old name that's available, you use that one. But if it's a completely new species with no available names prior, you can give it whatever you want. Which is why you know now we're running into problems because people have named beetles after Hitler. And moths after Trump, <laughs> mm. and you know, and once it's unfortunately once it's named, you can't undo it. Mm. Which is why you know there have been talk about tightening the rules. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as you don't name something really controversial, you can pretty much get away with whatever you want. That you have to justify it in some way, and you can do it cleverly. So, I had a a question I wasn't going to ask, but um, it just sort of popped into my head. I was aware of this intersection between you know uh, biologists or even geologists um, I guess like natural scientists in that way and like um, the knowledge of indigenous peoples so um, you know for example certain species may be new to science or western science but have always been known as like separate entities or, or what have you is that I, I guess it's tricky because the fish you study are in this particularly challenging mm -hmm. region but is is that have you seen any um, any evidence of that in in your your field or is that sort of like a new newer area? There, there definitely has been a big push lately to name things after indigenous provenance, whether or not that you know 
after an indigenous name or like an in indigenous area that the animal has been discovered from. Uh, you see that a lot in, especially in Australia, because Australia has such a, a rich indigenous culture. Um, you see that a lot in terrestrial animals. Mm. Um, in fishes, not so much because fishes, you know, the ocean is quite big and, and fishes live far and wide. Uh, but yeah, definitely um, we're trying to do that a little bit more now, involve local um, scientists who just know more about the area, more about the animals. Uh, we named a new species of razor wrasse from the Philippines recently and we've given it a Philippines name and, you know, the paper has a whole bunch of Philippine co-authors and it's just nice to make that connection because it not only, you know, it acknowledges where the fish comes from, but you're also giving an opportunity for, you know, local scientists who might not be, a be able to publish in a, you know, peer-reviewed journal for whatever reason to get that opportunity to collaborate. And it also just it makes for a better paper, I think, because, you know, local authors always just know so much more about the animal and the area that it comes from. They just mm. have that local knowledge that, you know, we might not, we know, we might not have. Mm. I'm working with, you know, animals that come from around the world. I might see a fish from the Philippines in the jar um, of a of an Australian museum or an American museum. And so sometimes I just think it's good practice to trace back its origin and get people from there involved. Mm. Yeah. Um, we haven't touched on it yet, but uh, on top of being a, a fantastic um, uh, classifier of fish, you're also uh, a beautiful macro photographer. Um, and I, I wanted to ask, so I, 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 I really, uh, I think everyone should should check out your website and your uh, your your photos. They're amazing. Does those uh, photos serve your scientific process? As in, do you photograph this fish and then use those photographs to um, help you classify, or is it purely because they are stunning, you know, beautiful creatures that you like to photograph? Both. I. I mean, I photograph not just fishes. I do bird photography, butterflies, you know, wildlife, general nature. Um, but the photos that I take of fishes definitely do come in handy for my research. Um, I like to take what I call studio shots of, of fishes where I photograph them on a really clean black background. Um, so it serves two purposes. One, it just really highlights the beauty of that particular animal with no distractions. Uh, and two, it allows you to make proper comparisons with another fish from a different photo, for example. Like if everything has the same background, then your eyes are just drawn to, let's say I'm comparing differences in the fins or the tails, how many spots it has, how many whatever. You can then make really clear, like there's no guessing involved. It's like, look at this thing. There is nothing there to distract you from it. And everything just becomes so standardized that it's almost like, looking at furniture from a catalog, basically. <laughs> I mean, I, I do off, I, I do really love uh, in-situ photos as well that shows its habitats, um, it's a bit of its behavior and a bit of its life lifestyle in the wild. Uh, and I try to pepper both types of photos in my papers when I'm writing them. Um, they serve different purposes and, you know, they come in handy for different reasons. So yes and no. To and, your and was photography sort of always something that you were interested in or, or did you thought it was really important for your work that you then knew how to do it? No, I was a photographer first before I became a scientist, um, but I didn't have any formal training. My brother, he's really into photography and I've always kind of just, whenever he upgraded his camera or his lenses, I'll just, you know, use his hand-me-downs and 
initially I was just trying to figure out what, you know, how do we, how to work the camera and, and it took me a long time to really find kind of my identity and my style in how I take my photos. And that is still ever growing and ever changing. Like my, the photos that I take today will look very different from photos that I take last year. Mm. Um, so it, it is, it is a fun hobby for me. Like I do spend a lot of time doing wildlife photography. And it seems to be very engaging, like, um, to, to communicate your work, you know, journal covers, articles, things like that. It's, it's really striking visual, uh, stimuli to help back up the research, I guess. Yeah. Basically the way I see it, there is absolutely no downside to picking up photography because it, it is so complementary to your research, not just yeah, like you said, not just because you can use the photos that you take in the figures that you make for your papers or journal covers or whatever, but it's, you know, like for media releases, for example, um, it's always nice putting a photo on Twitter or Instagram that links to your paper. It's something that catches the attention of the reader. And then it, you know, people stop and, and look at this photo of this fish and they go, oh my God, that is amazing. And they look, oh, there's a link here. I click the link and I read the paper, you know, everyone's mm. happy about it. Um, so yeah. Um, and you know, the good thing about photography now is that you can get really good photos with your phone or, you know, a little point and shoot camera. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars on like mm. a, an expensive SLR. You can, you can get by with so much these days. You just yeah. go out there and take a photo, start taking photos, everything. It's mm. good advice. Yeah. Um, you've also, uh, published in international and national, um, sort of, local news sources. I just wonder, do you have any advice um, for you know, other researchers or students? How do they get um, sort of to be able to have their research at that level of exposure and, and be able to communicate in a, in a more everyday kind of way? Say yes to everything. I, <laughs> I, it's funny, people always say this to me. They're like, oh, you know, you're everywhere. Like, how do you do it? I don't like being everywhere. I hate, I hate it for a very long time, the sound of my voice. I still do. I've said no to every single podcast request. I oh, thank you. Would you like us to stop? <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't want to be on TV. I didn't want to have my photo taken by, you know, someone who's not me with my front-facing camera. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it is a struggle that most people have. Like most people don't just wake up in the morning and be like, all right, I'm just going to stay in front of camera and talk for 40 minutes about my research. It's not natural, especially to someone who like, for me, I just want to sit in a dark room and play with my dead fishes. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't want to talk about. Super normal. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then I just, you know, like it's not going to stop. Like, you know, especially if you're working on really pretty animals, people just want to know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And it's a good opportunity to get the word out there and share your interest with other people. So like, the, the, the start small, start by, you know, giving talks at your local science fair, you know, uh, start small and build your way up. And, you know, it's, and I think a, a good advice that someone gave me was nobody actually cares about how you sound, only you do, or how you look or how you, you talk and, you know, stuff like that. When I watch a YouTube video, for example, like the last thing I think of is, oh, this guy sounds weird. Mm. Or here's a weird twitch with his nose, or he's, you know, scratching his knee. Like no one thinks that, just you. So, yeah, that's a I, I guess advice that you know someone a long time ago gave me, and I'm just trying to live by that. Mm. Yeah, I guess more more generally, um, this is a question we'd like to ask um, all the guests: is Do you have advice for? I guess you've just given some great advice there, but more generally in in your your career, because um, you know you've been able to travel, you've been able to do all these amazing things. Like, if you were to give yourself like 
a piece of advice from way back when, what, what would you uh, say to yourself? I think an advice that I, I've been very, very lucky, you know, but a lot of, a lot of the outcome that I, well, I guess the, yeah, I've been lucky number one, but also like I've never been afraid to like just go for whatever I want. And if you're someone who really just love fishes, then, you know, you will find any opportunity to just work with them. Volunteering. I started volunteering at the Australian Museum as a, an unpaid intern. I, you know, I, I reached out actively to other taxonomists and say, hey, I'm interested in taxonomy. Can you train me? Can you show me what it is? Don't afraid to be irritating. The worst thing that can happen is someone just says no. But if you don't do that, then you never get the exposure. You never put yourself out there. And that's the thing I think you should put yourself out there. It's scary, but that's the only only way to to go for to get what you want i think you can't just wait for it to happen if there are no opportunities try and make opportunities i know it sounds you know like a very privileged thing to say but i mean look at me like i'm <laughs> you know i'm i'm a non-white person living in a country that like i don't even have a passport or a visa from for but like i just there are ways to do it you know volunteer ask around help out if you're interested you know there are so many different ways to do it and just and don't be afraid to go for what you want i think and if you really really want something just i think naturally that's just how you get there because like not a day in my life do i feel like i'm you know doing work i wake up every day and i just feel like i just want to look at some dead fish (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's fun for me that's great you know so i think yeah the other advice is that like yeah you know if you don't already have a passion for whatever you're doing, um, try and try and find, try and find something that really excites you. Cause if you, if you, you know, can be so lucky to work in something that you just enjoy and it's fun for you, then you really don't have to work a day in your life. The cliche saying, right. That's how it goes. Mm. So I don't know if that's useful or helpful, but I, you know, sounds good. Yeah. That's great advice. Yeah. Thanks so much. No worries. For the chat, oh, thank Kai. you for having me here. This is uh, it's been a blast. Amazing. I love hearing about uh, ichthyologists um, and for everyone listening at home I really think check out your website follow you on on Twitter um, and yeah anything else no thank you thank you so much for having me yeah now um yeah and again like thank you for plugging my website um, or you can hit me up on Instagram or Twitter as well Kai the fish guy always happy to yep the um, the best name science name on social media the second being amateur fan uh, uh, Arachno Joe, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so check out at uh, uh, Kyle the Fish Guy and all the socials, and um, we'll see you for the next episode. Thank you so much. Have a good night. See ya.